This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, it's just Rob and me and kind of a different vibe. In the news, some categories of air travel have returned to pre-pandemic levels. A transonic truss-braced wing aircraft gets an X-plane designation. Germs on airliners, and it's not pleasant. And the Collings Foundation reaches a settlement with the remaining B-17 crash victims. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 769 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, certified flight instructor. Rob spent 10 years of his career at the FAA as an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hi, Rob. Hi. Well, after all that, I mean... What else is there to say? Uh, I mean, I, I can I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. There's not too much else to say. It is it is kind no. of overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the Jetwine blog has been around for a long time. Do you, do you remember what year did that start, Rob? Two thousand and six. Two thousand. Um, so it uh, we'll be coming up on uh, eighteen years, um, and it's it's been in continuous publication since two thousand and six. That's amazing. So two years older than this podcast. That's right. Yeah. I mean, but you can see it. I mean, all you got to do is look at my my face. I mean, nothing. This all used to uh, work, uh, you know, the, the face. Uh, it's amazing when you look in the, um, in the mirror in the morning and, and you say, who is that old guy? And, and you realize, boy, some things have really changed uh, as you as, as we creep on into the uh, uh, next decade or something, whatever yeah. whatever it is we're going to do. I try to avoid looking in the mirror because it's uh, it's too terrible looking. So, but anyway, um, so it's just uh, you and I this episode. Uh, David Vanderhoof is still under the weather. And Max Trescott was off on some kind of a SR-22 adventure today, I guess. And Yeah, he said he was probably not going to get uh, get back in time to um, uh, through the traffic in the Bay Area to make the show. Uh, he, I think he was ferrying an airplane. I remember he was ferrying an airplane or what he was doing, huh. but uh, something in an SR-22. Yeah, sure. All right, so this is likely to be a pretty short episode folks, uh, just the two of us. We have a, a couple of news items to talk about. We can, we can jump right into that. The, f- the first one comes from the American Journal of Transportation. This is air travel is back to pre-pandemic levels with new turbulence ahead. And the uh, American Journal of Transportation, which is ajot.com, uh, is uh, citing some data provided by Sirium, which is a, probably heard of it, it's a well-known aviation analytics firm. And um, they have some data that they show that it's taken almost four years to return to the pre-pandemic capacity levels from 2019. They have a little chart that uh, it comes from 
Uh, well, the data comes from Sirium, and I think Bloomberg took the data and created this chart. It looks kind of as you'd expect at the beginning of 2020, where capacity, airline capacity falls off a cliff and just nosedives down. But the climb out of that has been pretty much a, a linear growth and is uh, just now crossing the pre-pandemic line, catching up. So uh, I remember, Rob, when we experienced the beginnings of the pandemic and airline activity pretty much shut down or came close to it, and people were making predictions about how long it would take to recover and all. And it seems to me that kind of the long projection for the recovery was about four years. And I, I think we kind of thought, ah, man, four years to to climb out of that hole, it sounds kind of kind of like a lot. But that's the way it's turned out, apparently. Well, of course, too, remember that not long after the uh, pandemic began, I mean, the airlines in many countries, including the U.S., were, were panic-stricken because they had all this capacity, uh, all these airplanes sitting around, all these cockpit and cabin crew members that uh, – we're probably not going to be working. And um, uh, here, certainly in the States, we saw a rash of airlines offering uh, senior people uh, a bailout plan. And uh, I mean, American United, Delta, Southwest, I mean, they saw a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, I wasn't supposed to retire for another four years, but you know, maybe this sounds pretty good, actually. And and I think uh, perhaps many more took them up on that offer than they had expected because it doesn't – my recollection – and, of course, my recollection, I admit, it's a little foggy. Um, and uh, although I'm instrument rated, I can't claim to uh, necessarily see through all of the fog. Um, <laughs> but But I remember, oh, maybe it was not even – that not even to the end of that first summer in 2020, they were saying, uh, I think Oliver Wyman was the one that was posting first, uh, the, the consulting group saying, oh, you know, guys, uh, you may just find you're going to be short of uh, short of staff and, and uh, pilots and, uh, you know, mechanic, all, all kinds of folks. And um, people were saying, no, no, we're not going to be short. We just... We just got rid of all these people. I mean, uh, and and suddenly they they started to realize that the uh, not only did they eliminate the highest paid workers, which is what uh, of course affects the bottom line, but they also trashed their experience levels. I mean, so yes, you don't have to pay the uh, highest paid folks uh, any longer, um, but there's nobody left to to be the mentor for the new folks. Yes. Uh, and, and the people in the middle, sure, they knew more than uh, some of the some of the beginners, but they didn't have that rich depth of, uh, of experience to fall back on. And we have been playing catch up with uh, uh, staffing ever since. And we're still just in fact, I just read something from uh, uh, the uh, FAPA people that are, you know, the uh, uh, FAPA dot arrow guys that are uh, 
staffing analytics group, and uh, they've just sort of started to say, you know, maybe we're starting to turn the corner on having enough uh, bodies to to staff the aircraft that we'd like to have. But then you went ahead and threw this crazy story in there about how the uh, uh, how things have looked since the pandemic, and of course, the one thing that they didn't count on was that the costs of uh, having staff on board and aircraft and and just operations in general just went through the ceiling, especially the last eighteen months. Uh, and um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see where this all kind of lands. And on that point, uh, the uh, IATA, which one I had many the, the, solid you, points. Yeah. <laughs> To speak of. <laughs> On costs, the uh, International Air yeah. Transport Association has said that uh, industry profits will be more than 40% below 2019 levels this year. So while capacity is up <laughs> to those levels, the profits are, are, are not, not by a long shot. And they mentioned, as you did, you know, labor costs are up, jet fuel costs are up, debt service, all that is growing uh, growing more expensive. Uh, another uh, point that they make here is that corporate aviation rebound is, uh, is not so rosy a picture as the, uh, uh, you know, the leisure part of it. Some speculate that uh, business travel may never rise up to the levels that we experienced pre-pandemic. I don't know. But um, it's definitely leisure travel, I think, that's forcing uh, or, or facilitating this um, rebound in what uh, some people are calling uh, revenge travel, the revenge travel boom. People just want to go travel. Well, and, and I think, too, on, on the, all of those points, we read in this report how things have not really changed in terms of uh, China and and where they fall in all this um i mean they mentioned that uh, it just was it in august that they finally relaxed the the last of the covid restrictions uh, on chinese travelers going abroad and um one thing that i've noticed is that while we we've seen the the masks come off and most most of us have been vaccinated, and I'm not going to get into, you know, whether it's whether it's true or false or anyway. We'll just leave that as it is. But uh, but I found that people's psyche really took a hit, and people. Okay, right. I I can get out there, and I don't need a mask on an airplane uh, anymore or in the terminal. Um, but I guess I would equate what I'm trying to explain to kind of a, um, you know, people, they're there. The numbers show that people are traveling, but sometimes people just don't seem to be as uh, highly, and I'm including myself certainly, as, as energetic about travel as they used to be. Uh, they're doing it, but sometimes I feel like maybe their soul's not into it like they used to be. Yeah, I I experienced the same thing. It's kind of like the the thrill is gone, or, or at least some of the thrill is gone. We see we should have a clip. Oh, we can't play music. Who was it? Did 
The thrill is gone, yeah. baby. Okay. I, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry, folks. I know I can't sing. I'll shut up. You mentioned China, and uh, it, it turns out, and I didn't know this, that uh, China is the world's biggest source of outbound tourism, or at least it was in, in 2019. Most of outbound tourism, or at least the largest source of outbound tourism, is uh, has been China. And like you say, China has continued to have travel restrictions um, so they're, uh, you know, they're influencing the, you know, the, the global tourism market in that regard. But yeah, they are opening it up finally. I think the last ban that they opened up was on group tours or something like that. Well, and, and not to mention just the travel numbers themselves, but look at the um, look at the reaction of the Chinese to the seven three seven Max uh, issue. I mean. They have just really, uh, I I think it's within this last uh, year that they really uh, allowed the Maxes to really get out there and start doing their job again uh, because they had many, many aircraft still sitting on the ground unused. And um, I grant you, Boeing is is certainly producing more airplanes, but it, it just seems... From a layman's point of view, it just seems like there's this awful mismatch between uh, the numbers of people that want to go somewhere versus the number that uh, don't really care, the number of airplanes versus what they think they need versus what's on order, and the number of flight crews uh, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I mean, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, that was just last December when Southwest melted down with that uh, big reservation mess. And um, uh, they they are supposedly updating. It just, just, it, it just seems completely topsy-turvy to me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's why I don't write stories about travel like this person <laughs> at Bloomberg did, because I can't keep all these uh, moving pieces in place. It's difficult. It's complicated, yes. Well, you know, moving on, um, uh, talking about X-planes, and no sooner had Scott Spangler posted an article on Jetwine about the X-65 that we now have an X-66. I don't know if uh, Scott was uh, anticipating something so quickly, but from NASA we see next-generation experimental aircraft becomes NASA's newest X-plane. So this is the X-66A and that's the name of the aircraft that's to be developed under the NASA Sustainable Flight Demonstrator Project, SFD, Sustainable Flight Demonstrator. And uh, this one is a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting aircraft. But, uh, but before we talk about the aircraft, NASA calls this project, this SFD project, uh, they characterize it as engaging with industry, academia, and other government organizations to identify, select, and mature key airframe technologies, such as new wing designs, which is going to be the case here. Those that have a high probability of transition to the next generation single aisle seat class airliner. So this X-66A is an experimental demonstrator aircraft. It's going to be produced under a partnership between NASA and the Boeing company. And an interesting 
aspect, the key aspect of this, I guess, is that this is a transonic truss braced wing, which we've seen for a while now. The way I characterize this, Rob, is, you know, imagine a commercial airliner with with a high wing and with a with a truss or sort of a low wing that attaches to the fuselage down low and rises up to meet that upper high wing maybe a third of the way along the length of the of the wing and it gives you the ability to operate with a long and narrow main wing and this truss kind of braces that but it's an interesting interesting design well, now Chris they didn't really offer any details about the X66 other than uh, the fact that it would be uh they're going to use a an old was it an MD90 as a right. test airplane and they're going to convert it to I I just thought that was interesting that they're they're looking at using an old airplane as a as a test uh, jig and um uh, not thinking about building it from scratch uh, but of course I'm assuming the the truss is to support what sounds like it's going to be a much longer wingspan aircraft than we're used to. And, of course, the first thing I thought of is that how are these things going to get around on the ground? Will they have folding uh, wings? Will they have folding wings like an aircraft uh, does that's on a carrier? Uh, because otherwise, I mean, they're uh, the 777X mm. that has yet to be uh, was initially designed so that the wingtips folded. I can't remember how far inboard they went, but specifically to to prevent chaos at at airports that are right now using uh, that are right now operating with uh, uh, wide body airplanes, but nothing with the wingspan of the triple seven X. So what's this one going to have? And uh, uh, now, do you know what a you know what the uh, the strut does? Don't you? Uh, I mean the the brace. The brace. Uh, you know what it's for. I have a feeling you're going to tell us. Uh, no, actually, I I remember this from years ago when I when I was getting my instructor certificate in the 172. Now I'm not an aeronautical engineer, so this may be completely off base. Uh, but uh, an instructor said, "Do you know what the uh, you know what the strut does on the 172?" I said, "It holds up the wing." He went. No, he said it holds the wing down. He said it keeps it from oh. from uh, you know uh, f- trying to flap Lifting or up. you know when, when it. Uh, and I said, oh, I I never realized that before. Now maybe one of our aeronautical engineer uh, uh, listeners will be able to uh, give us a little update on what the X sixty six is going to do. I'm not going to ask Scott because. He's already a generation airplane behind, <laughs> just having written something today about the X-65. So, uh, but uh, to think about that. So have there been, uh, we've only heard about a few of the X-planes. I mean, the X-1 uh, and, uh, you know, the first aircraft to break the sound barrier. I remember the X-15, mm-hmm. uh, which was the prior to space flight in the in the 50s. Um I don't remember any of the other X's, do you? Well, you know, maybe a lot of them are planes that we don't know about. Um, I I don't know. There there were some uh, 
some some crazy ones. Uh, there was a uh, an X10 built by North American. I know back that was back in the fifties. There was uh, th- there were some missiles that have that have been, <laughs> been X planes. The X12 uh, was a uh, an Atlas missile test bed. Actually, there was the uh, you mentioned the X15. That's probably the one that uh, I used to have an X15 model when I was a kid. What did you do with it? I don't know. I wish I had. You know, I built a lot of models when I was a kid. Yeah, so did I. And I don't have any of them. David would would be the one to ask about. He still probably has very very difficult time moving because he has all his model airplanes to pack. But uh, I I remember mine was one of those uh, bedrooms that had wires at all four corners and then things hanging. And uh, yes. that's where I learned that you can't put the biggest one right in the middle because then it, it, it sinks and you'll brain yourself trying to walk through the bedroom at night. Um, anyway, but I, I learned many things. But uh, I really, when you think about it, I don't know how many of our, our listeners still build model airplanes. Um, and I'm just sort of starting to get back into it. Uh, I, I cleaned up my uh, the workshop and I've, I've got a few models that I I have that I've been sitting on for years and I finally said, you know, I, I kind of have some interest in doing that. Now, of course, will my hands be capable of, uh, you know, maneuvering all the little tiny bits and pieces and, and painting? And I, I maybe not. I, I may have to give up after the first one, but, uh, but we'll see what happens. But I'd be curious if any of the uh, listeners want to tell us if you, if you still build model airplanes and, and what, what are your, what's your pride and joy? Uh, on on airplane models. Did you have a favorite that you built? Um, I remember the uh, the Phantom P fifty one. It was a uh, a clear plastic uh, P fifty one. I think it was a D, the one with the bubble cock by bubble canopy, and it sat on a stand and it had little controls at the base that you could. Um, uh, you could run the engine up, uh, and and the propeller would spin. Uh, there was another lever that you could use to uh, retract and lower the landing gear, and I think maybe another button you pressed, and it would drop its uh, uh, drop bombs or wing tanks or something like that. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the whole world. But uh, I really didn't get out much in those days. <laughs> The favorite model of mine that, that I built was a B-24. And I remember thinking that I just nailed the paint job, that it was a completely realistic, fantastic paint job. How did you paint? With a brush or? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say yes. I think I think with a yeah, brush. Probably, I mean, spray guns yeah, were no, really. No, I didn't have any of that stuff. But what I was going to say is it, if I still had that plane and I saw it today— I would probably think it looks like junk, <laughs> you know, but, but to a little, you know, I don't know, a 12 year old kid or 14 year old kid or something, it just seemed to be my, my you know, the culmination of my uh, model building skills. Oh yeah. And especially too, if you head to any of the, uh, the really top notch museums uh, these days that uh, feature aviation exhibits and you see some of these, collections of model airplanes. I remember at Udvar Hazy, I think there was an entire room of 
uh, great-looking models. And, uh, I mean, someone took, uh, I'm sure it wasn't just one person, but, I mean, I thought, wow, having known what kind of work it took just to build the model, uh, it, it's the painting that really makes it go nuts because uh, yeah. uh, it, it uh, but again, it's very, very uh, detailed if you really want it to look great. And, um, uh, but again, my, yeah, my painting skills, uh, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to waste my time and money on a, on a spray gun because I'll, I'll end up spraying everything in sight and probably very little of the airplane. So uh, yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to wing it. Yeah. So that's a good idea. If you're uh, listening and you're uh, an airplane modeler, let us know. Tell us about your activities. If you've got a, if you've got a favorite model or you want to send us a, a photo or two, yeah, do that. Love to, love to see what people what, are Did doing. you ever fly radio control airplanes? No, I never did. No, I didn't either. I, I, in fact, I was just, uh, I know we're going to have another story here in a little bit about the, uh, uh, the B-17 that went down at Bradley. And I just last week saw a, uh, uh, a remote control B-17 uh, flying at, I don't even know where it was, actually. I know it was here in the States. Um, but uh, the thing that I always thought was interesting, and again, there are probably many radio control people out there, um, but it's, it's easy to control the airplane when it's flying away from you. Uh, yes. If you if you want to bank left, you push the stick to the left. But when it's coming at you, you have to be just the opposite. Right. And I never could seem to get the hang of that. Uh, and I've even tried in in flight sim when I'm I'm looking at a view of the airplane and and I'm it's coming sort of at a strange angle and I'm going. No, it's the other way. Okay, yeah. and the and the wings are rocking because I'm banking the wrong way and. I never got that. So I, I'd be curious, anybody that did that, how did you train yourself to uh, <laughs> learn that, uh, to get past that ambiguity? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the flight control, I'm calling it the flight control ambiguity. And uh, how did you solve that problem? All right. I know I never really did. All right. Another uh, another item, this, uh, this came in from... Micah, actually, from the Washington Post. How germy are airplanes? We put one to the test. Well, the author of this piece got a microbial detection system from a company called Charm Sciences. And uh, Charm, Charm Sciences' tagline is where the science of food safety is a way of life. And they make, amongst other things, detectors that will identify, you know, microbes or germs or different uh, different unsafe conditions. So, Germies. the author got a hold of one of these. This this one used um, uh, swabs, and they or she went on a flight on a recent flight, swabbed ten different high touch points on this flight, and uh, things like uh, the, the trays, the fold down trays, the armrests. Um, in the in the lab, things like that, and nine of the ten tests failed. <laughs> so, in other words, you, you know, exceeded some some level of uh, germs or microbes or stuff that we don't want to be around, I guess. Um, and um, 
it, it was kind of an interesting. It, it's not completely unexpected, at least to me. It it kind of Rob reminds me of when someone goes into like a hotel room with a black light or something, or or does these kind of test swabs and finds horrific levels of or what we'd consider to be horrific levels of uh, you know germs and contaminants and things like that. I, I would think an airplane would be the same. I mean, I, I guess it's not a huge surprise. Well, it, it to me, it, it wasn't uh, because I know that airlines are limited on their overnight stays as to what kind of cleaning they can get done. Uh, and I think the author pointed out that perhaps the airplane that leaves a station first thing in the morning is probably the cleanest. Uh, but uh, and then... Who knows? It kind of goes downhill from there. But the one thing that that she didn't mention is she's kind of taking this as a black and white. uh, Oh, my God, look at the germs. Um, But we don't know at what level they become dangerous because, of course, human beings have a a certain level of immunity, uh, natural immunity to certain kinds of germs. So, yes, some of them might be uh, very high, but unless you're uh, you know, wiping your hands on the table and then saying, "Oh wow, let me uh, you know clean with my nose," or uh, "I've got you know whatever." Yeah, I mean, so they may not really affect us. Um, so again, but it is kind of an interesting way to think of it, especially in a day when people seem to have completely forgotten about COVID. And and those days when we used to get on an airplane, you'd see somebody wiping down the the tray table mm. and the, uh, the little uh, the gasper valves over the top that produced air, and and uh, nobody took their mask off. And um, boy, it that was only a few years ago. Yeah, I, I you know I, we live in germs. As an yeah. ex, as an example, the the author uh, before she went on the flight. Tried to, and swabbed her iPhone, and that didn't pass either. Her own personal iPhone. She said there was no question that my device was scientifically disgusting. <laughs> so I mean, it's everywhere. But I, I thought it was interesting as to which areas of the plane had the most uh, germs. Now I don't know what the u- units are here, but this thing measures something RLU which is probably something. See, and, and that was another thing that drove me crazy about the story. I, I have no reference point. There's no context for uh, yeah. is zero perfect and 152 is bad as opposed to uh, 600,000. I, I don't know. I have yeah. no re- yeah. frame of reference. Well, the worst spot that she tested was the lavatory sink handle. And that had the highest reading. That was 657,000 RLUs. The runner-up, the next uh, worst spot was the tray table. And that had 427,000 LRUs. And interestingly, almost at the bottom was the toilet flush button. That was only 35,000 LRUs. I say only, again, not knowing what's the significance, but compared to the 657,000 of the sink handle, that's that's a lot. But the best thing of all, the funniest thing of all, there was one item that registered zero. And you know what that thing was in the airplane? 
It was the that. it was the safety card in the seat back pocket. <laughs> why, why does that not surprise me? As anybody who's traveled in the back of an airplane, <laughs> uh, when they say, uh, "Please give your attention to the flight attendant." Uh, at uh, in the front of the cabin and mid cabin, uh, they're going to demonstrate the safety features of our Boeing seven three seven Max, and people are like, yeah, and they're playing solitaire and they're looking at a magazine and uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we've just been very lucky that we have not had an accident, uh, really, in gosh, in the last decade at least, uh, in an airliner, so that. People feel quite justified in not paying attention to what the flight attendants are saying. And um, the flight attendants are there for their safety, not to serve drinks and snacks. Um, but yeah, the, one, the one part of the uh, safety demonstration I always love is when they, when they uh, I'm flying from Chicago to L.A. And, and they tell me about, should, in the event of a water landing, and I'm going, oh, yeah, I want to see how that's going to happen between here and L.A. Uh, and uh, but, uh, you know, again, people don't seem to pay attention to the safety features. Yeah, I know they don't. All right. Uh, one item um, and this came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but in AvWeb, this is uh, Collings Foundation reaches settlement with 909 crash victims. Now, uh, this, of course, was, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Rob, this was the B-17 that crashed at Bradley International Airport in Connecticut. That was uh, 2019. It's just up the road from you. Just it? up the road. And the reason that this has such a emotional attachment to me, besides the fact that that was just up the road, was that exactly one week prior to that crash, uh, the Collings Foundation had this and a few other aircraft up in Maine, and I went up there, and uh, along with Micah, we interviewed Mac McCauley, who's the the pilot, and we, uh, we, we talked to him under the wing of the B-17. We spent some time uh, actually looking up at the engines and talking about, about the engines, and... Um, of uh, of course the the NTSB uh, which did issue its final report said that the B17 it lost partial power in two of its engines on takeoff and this was one of the typical fundraising flights that the Collings Foundation and others and others do but um, uh, the pilot Mac tried to return back to the field and the NTSB concluded that he lowered the landing gear prematurely and that increased drag resulted in the plane losing altitude it clipped some approach lights it hit the ground and then collided with some unoccupied vehicles and ended up uh, crashing into a tank farm and of course there was the you know the ensuing fire so yeah i mean we just talked to this guy one week before this crash and and that interview is in Airplane Geeks episode 573. So if you want to listen to that, that's airplanegeeks.com slash 573. That'll take you right there. Um, but uh, Micah and I were hoping to get a ride in that B-17 in Maine. And uh, it didn't fly that day because they didn't have enough uh, enough people sign up for the flight. So they won't 
take it up for just a couple. So it, there's some minimum number. And um, I actually didn't know, <laughs> strangely enough, when I was up in Maine, that the Collings Foundation was going to be close to where I live in Hartford the following weekend. If I had known that, I probably wouldn't have gone all the way up to Maine to see them up there. I probably would have gone to see them at, at BDL in Connecticut, and I might have been on that, you know, on that B-17 when it crashed. So what the article says is that um, there's, there's finally a settlement with the, with the crash victims. Uh, actually, two of the victims or the survivors uh, settled previously. Um, that was in 2021 that two of the other passengers who had died they reached an, an agreement in 2021, and so uh, more recently, they've just reached an ag- agreement with the rest of the the victims. And um, the terms of the settlement, they say, will not be made public. Uh, it was mediated by a retired judge, so uh, we won't know exactly, you know, what the parties received as as compensation. Apparently, and and this this hits home for me too because. The Collings Foundation used to be a regular at uh, Palwaukee, or Palwaukee, I'm sorry. It's it's always going to be Chicago-Palwaukee to me, but it's Chicago Executive Airport, just north of O'Hare. Uh, they used to be a regular every summer. Uh, they brought the uh, uh, 909 in. They brought uh, a B-24, uh, a B-25, and usually a P-51. And I did get to go for a ride on 909. Oh, you did. And uh, it was, I, I mean, honestly, the, the one stupid thing that all of us do is that when we we see somebody else's airplane, we just assume that they have taken care of it and that they know how to operate it. We just we just take it for granted. And um, I, I was, uh, I remember when we got airborne and they said, you guys can walk around if you want. Uh, in the uh, in the uh, fuselage, and I of course went up to the bombardier's uh, uh, seat in the nose of the uh, B seventeen, and just watched how the, uh, the you know the terrain kind of passed beneath. Wow, wow this is really cool. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I I didn't take any pictures because I was just I was just so uh, enthralled with the whole thing. But after that happened, I went, oh my god. Uh, I've had a couple of other closer brush with brushes with uh, with death in airplanes that uh, were being flown by somebody else, and um, uh, you you get to a point where you say, yeah, you know, I I don't know that I'm going to be doing that kind of thing anymore, uh, and um, so you know, again, I, I haven't heard much out of the Collings Foundation. Since that accident, um, but I mean, uh, I knew a couple of folks at work there, and they they used to go through incredible efforts, uh, a tremendous amount of work to to keep those airplanes flying. Uh, and it's it's just kind of sad to think that somehow some of these maintenance issues. Uh, I think it was the Magnetos that that didn't uh, weren't timed right or were beyond uh, uh, you know repair or what have you, but. Um, it just, they got away from them and, uh, and it cost all these people their lives. Yeah. Very tragic. 
and uh, yeah, a real blow to the Collings Foundation, obviously, and uh, to others organizations that that fly these old warbirds. I'm sure they were impacted, and you know, people think about an accident like this. Sure, the commemorative Air Force flies quite a few, uh, and uh, but you know what? I mean, there's a there's a cost to everything at times, isn't there? Yeah. Yes, that's true. You got to make your own decision about what level of risk you're willing to take. And like you say, the older you get, that that uh, risk tolerance uh, decreases. Yeah, uh, that, it, it does indeed. Yeah, it does. I think of some of the things I did 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> it scares the hell out of me. Yeah, I, I used to tow banners in, in an airplane uh, uh, out of Chicago here, and I towed them up and down the lakeshore in the summer. And uh, I think about, gee whiz, we were, you know, I was in a, a Satabria 150-horse tail dragger, and we would get down, no, not we, I mean, when they were training me, there were two of us, but uh, you, when I did it myself, you'd get down low, uh, maybe five foot off the ground, and you'd make sure the airplane was in level flight, and you'd full throttle, and you've got a big hook, you know, traveling out the back, and you'd grab the banner, and up into the sky you'd go, and uh, you could just feel it was like somebody uh, uh, just stopping the airplane hmm. because the banner created so much drag. And, uh, uh, I mean, when I think of how dangerous that was, especially in the summer, which was our, our peak advertising uh, uh, period, all that engine would have had to do was, was to cough, and man, we'd have been headed for the uh, uh, headed for the ground. And uh, you think I wouldn't do that now? Yeah, <laughs> you, you couldn't pay me enough money to do that. Was there a way you could just eject the banner? Yeah, that we had a lever inside that, uh, uh, and and that was the one thing uh, uh, that they taught me early on is that if you even think the airplanes. Uh, engine is coughing, yank that handle and dump that banner because you won't have much time to to do anything else. Um, and of course, the other issue you had problem you had to think about was that um, remember we were at ground level. Uh, maybe the banner was it was strung between two poles with a guy on each side and then a, a cable in kind of resting uh, like a clothesline. And the, and the goal was to get the hook to grab the clothesline uh, and and yank the banner up into the air. Well, if you didn't do it right and you came in at too, or you climbed out at too shallow an angle, you could catch the banner on the ground. And and that would uh, dump the aircraft on oh, its nose as well. Uh, so it was uh, it was quite a quite an experience. Um one that I look back on fondly as some of the great uh, stick time that I got, but nothing I want to do now, uh, nor would I, uh, uh, you know, be that interested. In, I don't know. I shouldn't say I wouldn't want to watch it. I would like to watch it, uh, watch them pick the banners up from the ground these days just to say, yeah, I remember that. Yep, back in the old days, and that's when my hair was straight. Um uh, and then after a couple summers, that's when my hair got curly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a month or two ago, I was uh, down in Maryland, and I kept hearing this this airplane 
uh, over and over and over. And I'm thinking, what's what's going on out there? So I went outside to take a look. And it was an agricultural sprayer, you know, an air tractor, mm. one of those things. And just watching that. And, and I couldn't even see the entire, you know, pass that he was making because of the, it was blocked by trees and everything. But just what I could see, it was a great show. I could just sit there and watch watch that all afternoon. Well, and, and what I, I you know, because I live close to the, uh, I live right by Northwestern University here in, in Evanston. And uh, so we're right close to the lakeshore, uh, the western edge of Lake Michigan. And so when I hear an airplane coming by, oh, they're coming from executive going to the lake or up. And then you hear this airplane engine and it, it doesn't seem to move. It's, you can hear it and you can tell that it's straining but it doesn't seem to move anywhere. And I go, that's a banner to it uh, because ah. you just know the engine's at full throttle. But with all that drag, it's maybe cruising at 70 miles an hour. Uh, and it, especially if it's going into the wind, you, you're not going anywhere in that airplane. Uh, and it takes a long time. Uh, but, uh, but again, it was, it was a, an exciting – they paid us very, very well. Oh. Uh, which, of course, at the time, I was too stupid to understand. Why do you think they pay you so well? <laughs> because it's risky. Should have been your oh, clue, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, but uh, yeah. not to be forgotten. All right. Well, that's all I have, Rob. Anything uh, going on in your world that you want to do? Well, how much, how much free time do we have? Um, well, quite no, a lot. I'm actually. just kidding. <laughs> I, what was that we were doing? A couple of weeks ago on, on some segment, and I, I gave the audience this big, long-winded answer to some silly question that, that probably was, you know, no more deserving of anything other than a yes-no. Um, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite that bad. Well, I, I do get a little caught up. Uh, no, I don't have anything else. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap this up. If you're still with us, thanks. Thank you for uh, for putting up with Rob and I uh, in this. How could they not be here? The okay. thing is, only we've only been running about twenty minutes. No, uh, well, I a mean, if they gave that. up already, I mean, uh, how dedicated are they? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have an extremely dedicated audience. Uh, I think, as you know, and uh, we're we're very grateful for that. We love hearing from you. We we thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. And as always, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. We have show notes there, links to all the stories we talk about, and oftentimes some other information related to those stories. And this is this being episode 769, you can go straight to the show notes for that episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 769. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, probably wherever you're listening to this right now, in uh, in most cases. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. We also have a, a Slack listener team, and uh, we have a Discord server. And so if you'd like to join in the conversation in either or both of those places, just write to us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com, and we'll tell you how to get in. All right. Rob, uh, where do folks find you? They'll usually find me hanging around jetwine.com with Scott Spangler. Uh, and in within, I should say, not in, within the pages of some print magazines of the aviation type, although they are 
uh, disappearing quickly, all having been uh, purchased by flying media. And uh, I forgot how many aviation publications they own now, but they've, they've kind of cornered the market on that. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I wish them well, even though uh, I, I do miss some of the fun I used to have when I was senior editor there. Yeah. Yeah, times are changing, that's for sure. Well, you can find out uh, all the places I hang out online if you visit 30,000feet.com. Can I interrupt for one second? I, I always feel guilty that you ask us about us and we never ask you about you. You always just kind of dump it in. So why don't we just transition? Hey, Max, so where where, where do we find you? Well, Rob, now that you ask. It's only taken 15 years. I, mean. I know, I know. Huh? So, um, well, I have this website that's called 30,000feet.com, spelled out, all words, which I asked you about Jetwine earlier, uh, Rob. 30,000 feet, I think I started in 1996, as I, oh, wow. as I recall. Yeah. Uh, at that time, it was an aviation directory because that was pre-Google and things like that and there was probably a news group or something oh yeah i had a big section on all the aviation news groups that you if you uh, if you if you've been around long enough you know what those are um all kinds of resources like that and uh, i built that just kind of as a lark i wanted to understand how web pages were this new thing called the world wide web had come out and i was really curious to to learn how those things worked. And so the best way to do, do that was to make a web page. So I did. So I learned HTML and eventually CSS and struggled through different browser incompatibilities. Uh, you know, those were back in the days where you'd see a web page and out at the bottom it would say best viewed with Netscape Navigator. Remember oh, that? Wow. Or best viewed yeah. with Internet Explorer because you get a different experience depending on which browser you used. So... Do you remember when uh, America Online used to give away those discs and uh, and you signed? I forgot. Remember the you know modems. when you connected with a modem and uh, of course people listening today are going, "What's he talking? Are those about? guys drunk or what? We just don't get out near as much as we should." No, no. So so instead of uh, subjecting you do it to any more of uh, of us, I'll ask that you please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast, hopefully with some more co-hosts and perhaps even a guest. Bye, everybody. Good night and night. And uh, as Max would say, keep the blue side up. And as David would say, and thanks for listening. 